Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centred design practitioner based in Sydney, Australia. Before we jump in, however, as this podcast was recorded in the Sydney CBD, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land where we meet today and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. In this episode, we caught up with Jay Hasbrook, author of the highly recommended ethnographic thinking book. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. So in this episode, we go through what ethnographic thinking is and how it should be applied to inform richer contextual insights for design teams and how designers have abused or misunderstood ethnography and even touch on some retail rituals in the US and talk about how going off-piste in Jay's research plan in Japan led him into a shoe hotel and all the rich insights about the culture that followed. So let's jump straight in. Jay Hasbrook, a very warm welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Thank you very much. Um, It's a pleasure to be here, Jerry. Jay, let's get started and tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the world of ethnography. Sure. Uh, My background's in anthropology, um, social anthropology in particular. And I came to anthropology, I'd say, sort of in the back door. Um, Just I was interested in visual anthropology at first and the, the whole concept of how ideologies drive behavior and how those behaviors are then in many ways reinforced in ideologies. And from there, I moved on to some very applied work, um, both at Intel and IDEO. And for the past 10 years, I've had my own consultancy. Excellent. And you've just completed, uh, well, recently in the last year, the book Ethnographic Thinking, um, which I'm currently working my way through, and it's a fascinating read. So thanks for your time for joining us today. So let's start a little bit more about understanding what ethnography is to you. Um, How would you describe it, maybe to a young child? Sure. Um, Ethnography can be described most simply as the study of people and cultures from the perspective of the subject or the person that's in that culture. And so that's sort of the general working definition. In the book, ethnographic thinking is a a different beast. Um, I define that as the thought processes and the sort of ways of being and interacting and seeing the world that develop when people practice ethnography on a regular basis. So it's a, it's a disposition, I would say. So what kind of work do you tend to do on a day-to-day basis? It's a combination of things. Uh, I'd say a good bulk of what I do is really focused on analysis and strategy. There's definitely some field work and some the research side, but I think some of the really heavy lifting comes in when you need to make sense of that, bring some meaning and interpretation to what happened in the field use that data and those insights as a way to ladder up to the kinds of strategies and real implications that my clients need. Right. So who would you tend to work with, not talking about clients, but in terms of practitioners or skill sets that you'd be um, working side by side with? Uh, It's a combination. I never work alone, so I'm usually working with designers. That's first and foremost. Um, Occasionally I'll be working with creatives like a writing team or other kinds of people who are involved, interaction designers as well, of course. And then eventually, depending on the project, sometimes engineers and people who are strategists or marketing professionals to get that sort of integrated portion of the insights driven through an organization. Okay, which is a great segue because um, one of the bits in your book I mentioned earlier before we started recording was there's a couple of pieces where you, you challenge the role of design. And one piece in particular, um, you state, in short, ethnographers tend to ask why, while designers aim towards what. The relationship is often symbiotic in practice, but they also are at odds empirically. So tell me a little bit more about your experience with design and what led you to this conclusion. 
Yeah, um, my experience with design probably it probably predates my time at IDEO, but it was I think really formative period when I was at IDEO, directly involved with a design culture. I'd put it. And what I want to do with the book is I want to draw attention to the limited ways that ethnography um, has traditionally been integrated into the design process. I'm not the first person who have made this argument. There's other, there are others, um, Paul Durish and Ken Anderson, also at Intel. They both talked about, well, it's a really pretty limited lens when you think about ethnography as only a tool for collecting data for the design process. So what I'm trying to do with the book is show that it's a complex relationship. It's great that design has allowed ethnography to have the visibility and demonstrated the value of ethnography. Mm. But at the same time, I think a lot of ethnographers, we haven't been as assertive enough about owning and directing the value that's brought to the table other than just insights from customers. Yeah. So by design, what do you mean? Like, are you talking service design, user experience design, or is it traditional visual design? No, it's uh, human-centered design. Human-centered design. Because in my experience, coming from a service design background, we would always ask why. And is that something that you've, that the legacy that you've seen, like there's a change in the industry? Because designers, in my experience, always ask why. And that's the bit that kind of stuck out at me in the first chapter. I was like, actually, I don't know if I agree with that. What I was trying to get at there was the trajectory of the of the two approaches, and that in many ways they're symbiotic, that they actually work side by side really well. If you've got a designer who's, yes, they're asking why at the front end in particular of, of the design process, but eventually they're trying to drive toward a what. They're trying to get yeah. toward that solution or that thing or that collection of things. Whereas I think ethnographers, just by nature, in terms of the disposition, the, the ethnographic thinking disposition that they bring to the table, are really much more comfortable in many ways of opening the questions up. Because that's what they do all the time, right? They're always asking why. You know, they ask those types of questions. And so I don't see them as necessarily opposed. I just think it's worth considering that they're at different trajectories. And then there is that history that I mentioned earlier, where it's like seeing ethnography as only a tool versus something that can be used, you know, if you think about ethnography as that sort of opening up in the process, it makes sense that that should happen throughout the design process, not just at the beginning sort of explore phase. Absolutely. You're definitely not going to get any um, pushback from me in thinking that the two are symbiotic. I definitely see the two of them going, you know, hand in hand and working like superpowers when they're when they're brought together, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think so in a lot of ways. One of the things that I think that speaking of the added value of ethnographic thinking as well is if you do embed this sort of continual opening up sort of why approach of ethnographic thinking throughout the design process, you start to see the value of that kind of the insider outsider status that an ethnographer brings to the table. Mm. Um, and you start to be able to incorporate the cultural dynamics of that company or that, you know, the client's offering if you're working in a consultancy so it's more than just the sort of focus on the design brief. It's, okay, what is that design brief swimming in, for example? Mm. So what do you see when you go into organizations? Uh, what do you see in regards to how designers are researching? What problems do you see in their, in their research methods? I think that in some cases you're starting to see a lot of people claiming they can do ethnography um, <laughs> and not really giving it a lot of careful consideration. That is, that is a problem because, you know, sitting in someone's living room for half an hour doesn't necessarily mean you're doing ethnography. Yeah. So I think that there are some challenges there around, you know, and I, I'm not like a rigid disciplinarian myself anyway. I mean, I think that we're all crossing disciplinary boundaries all the time. 
but I still believe there's a certain amount of dedication to the discipline, no matter where you're dabbling, that should take place. So I think there is a little bit of slapdash going on out there around, you know, how do you apply? How do you get ethnography? And some of that could come from pressures from above where they're like, they've been told they need to check the ethnography box. So just go <laughs> yeah. up there and do it. You know, and then tell us what you learned. We've, we've done the ethnography bit, so let's move on. <laughs> is that what you're seeing? Yeah, exactly. So how do you think designers have abused and misunderstood the research method or ethnography in general? Well, I think it sort of relates to what we were just talking about, that sometimes you'll see this misinterpretation of ethnography as a practice where you just go ask people what they want, and they, t- and they tell you, and you just tell people what, exactly what people said without adding a layer of interpretive value to that experience, or the team goes ahead and just designs what they felt like they wanted to do anyway. And they start looking for the data that will prove what they wanted in the first place. So what kind of things do you do in that instance? Because obviously you you need to start somewhere. What kind of tactics should designers be doing more of in terms of the craft of ethnography thinking? Yeah, I think what I found most valuable, and this definitely does cross disciplines and I think people respond to it, is really try to anchor and substantiate your insights So you can trace them, you know, you can go from a field insight to a set of patterns that you see across those field experiences to some larger themes and then some insights that the team is bringing that's sort of unique value. And then you can trace those all the way back for someone when you're presenting them or even within the team so that you see that what you've got there is substantiated. You're building knowledge as you're building the project. I found that that tends to be very valuable and you start to see, it makes the process very transparent and it anchors it. Is that what you're referring to um, in as regards designers using the word synthesis versus ethnographers using the word analysis? Yeah, I think some of that was um, also builds on what we were talking about earlier around different trajectories of the two practices and how you see synthesis in many ways being a narrowing practice that sometimes can be too eager to rush towards solution, whereas analysis re- implies a more open approach, that there are you know, uh, dynamics in the consideration that doesn't all come to a point that it may come to 10 points or it may come to a swirl, for that matter, <laughs> or a grid. So I think that's, that's some of what I was getting at with the differences there. Yeah, and absolutely. So how do you think ethnography or ethnographic thinking I'm using your term in terms of the book. How should that be applied in terms of the innovation process? I think that one of the things that where it could add a lot more value is um, making sure that ethnographic thinking is part of the entire design process or the, the entire innovation process so it doesn't get stuck in the front end and then just sort of tossed away. That some of that thinking around, you know, bringing in alternative lenses, you know, cross-pollinating ideas, you know, walking this thin line between the insider and the outsider status, all of those things, that kind of openness, that kind of exploratory approach, and as we talked about, this interpretive layer that goes with it as you build a case, all those things are valuable throughout the process. So you could be in the prototyping stage, and when you're in that stage, that often is a a stage in which, yes, you may be learning and refining, Mm -hmm. you know, and getting toward a better design. At the same time, you might also be uncovering new opportunities that would be lost in the process if you, if you didn't you know, fold in some of this sort of opening 
that happens with ethnographic thinking. Yeah, no, absolutely. So a lot of that, that work that you're just speaking about there is looking outward. Have you experienced looking inward as regards the biases that the teams may have and how that can be applied to the research? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's two layers to that, I think. One, looking inward is really interesting to think about looking at a company's culture in general, or mm. you know, it could be a consultancy or, or a large corporation or mm. any kind of organization. That doesn't exist in a vacuum, and I think a lot of people oftentimes presume that it does, right? It has a relationship to customers. It has a relationship to stakeholders that are out there influencing those customers. So seeing that dynamic is really productive, and that's one of the things that ethnographers do a lot of is take insights from lots of different domains and then reach some kind of meaningful interpretation. So it's a very comfortable spot for ethnographers to exist in. And then within teams as well, I think if you go one step down in granularity, that kind of reflexive approach to the team is very helpful as well, where you're saying, you know, let's apply some of this thinking to ourselves. Let's take a good look at, you know, how it is that we interact, what kinds of values we're prioritizing and the kinds of questions that they're asking, you know, what are the, what are the power dynamics that at that play there that are influencing our product? Yeah. So one of the things that, in my experience, is when, when I've been working with organizations, is trying to sell in this type of, of thinking into, I guess, the stakeholders or whoever it is. So what's your experience in regards trying to sell in ethnography in regards to trying to get a design outcome? It's always tough. I, I mean, I have to be honest there. And I think part of the challenge is that it's one of these things where it's not like a product where, you know, mm. hey, here's this thing, $30, do you want it or not? You know? <laughs> there's no output. Well, there is an yeah, output, there's, yeah. There's always, a, um, you know, there's always a learning curve. But I do think that it's much, much more helpful to point to the ways in which it applies and the ways in which it adds value to any kind of um, initiative. And in that case, I think it's really most useful to talk about those insights as having strategic value to inform the questions of how in an organization, how are we going to do this? How are we going to reach a new market? How are we going to, you know, better understand the consumer behavior in this respect? Or how can we introduce a new product in, um, in Egypt? All of those things, you know, are more than just visiting living rooms, as we talked about earlier. It's a matter of developing the insights that can lead to some directions and some real decisions that can be made about how to do those things. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just reading your book, there's a there's a fantastic case study in there where you went to, I think it was Japan. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the story of, I think it's the Shoe Hotel. Yeah, that was um, it was a real eye opener, I think, for everyone on the team, including myself. We'd spend a lot of time doing exploratory research for this client, and, and the client was with us in the field, which I love. And we were really trying to get a sense of what does it look like, you know, what does retail look like from a whole different perspective within their, their offerings, which was mostly um, health and beauty, um, a little bit of house care, home care. So we did a lot of looking around, immersed ourselves in tons of different kinds of experiences. So what does that look like? Just, just to stop you there, what does it look like in terms of like you were, you were looking around? In terms of the method, what were you doing? Was it just going through scenarios and interviewing people? Walk me through that. Um, the interviews would be on the fly. Basically, what we did, we did there was a, a larger research plan that also did involve actual interviews and some one-on-ones, but this was the observational portion of our research. So it really involved using observation protocols, thinking about what are the kinds of things we want to target. So for example, one of the things we wanted to look at is how might service be tied to product in ways that we hadn't thought of. 
So we went to buy a set of knives, for example, and really think about, you know, how is this different than where you might buy a set of knives in other parts of the world and pay close attention to what are the expectations of both parties. And you may be asking questions along the way, but you're also just being immersed in the process, thinking about, you know, what is it that's being communicated and exchanged here? Yeah. And I'm sure yeah, if you've been, you know that it's the, the whole retail process is unique in a lot of ways. It's filled with lots of ritual and lots of, there are some small formalities and a lot of things built into the expectations between the seller and the buyer. So what is it about those ceremonies that, um, how have they originated? Uh, well, I think they're different. I mean, I think they exist in every country. I was just reading the other day that in the United States, um, which I'd never thought about because obviously I'm, I'm American. And, um, but it surprises some people that um, the way in which you use cash and the way in which you're just expected to present cash is, in most circumstances, an orderly way. You're supposed to have the bills with the face up, um, folded <laughs> really? out. <laughs> yeah. And it's true. I do it. And I think a lot of other people do it too. And I don't know, really, I don't, I can't for the life of me remember why I do it, but handling over like folded or crumpled bills is considered disrespectful. So well, uh, it's I mean, those kinds of practices that I, I think no are, idea. yeah, lots of different origins. And, you know, that could come from some form of patriotism, who knows. But in Japan, I do think it comes from expectations around what value is the seller offering and also what are the expectations of respect that the buyer has as well. Yeah. So just going back to the the shoe hotel bit, because I, I know the listeners may not have read the book. I totally recommend that you go buy the book. But um, tell us more about that story about how that came about. Yeah. So we anyway, we were wandering. We were toward the end of the day. We'd made lots of visits, and we were wandering on our way back to the hotel, and we came across this storefront that had uh, the shingle hanging outside what looked like a, a cobbler, a shoe. But then when we looked in the window, it looked more like a hotel or a lobby of something. It was very formal and very ornate. There was a couple of lounge chairs, very wood paneled walls. And we, obviously we were curious and we decided to go in. This wasn't on our research plan at all. This didn't fit the bill. But we decided to venture in. When we went in, we noticed that um, in the very far back, there was a cobbler in this like white cube <laughs> and a, a woman who was actually doing some shoe repair work. So we just, she was the owner. We found out later. So we went to ask her, what was, you know, what is this place? You know, th- it looks unusual to us and she share with us what you do here. And she proceeded to tell us that she was doing some shoe repair and told us about the repairs. And while we were there, someone came in, this young guy came in, um, he made a phone call, sat down, and then he decided to get up and interact with someone else. And, what we realized that after we saw him go through a series of exchanges where the person helping him brought out a pair of shoes, showed him the shoes, then put them back on a shelf, then went to another sliding panel, opened that up, pulled out a pair of shoes and showed him those, put them back. We started realizing this isn't just a cobbler. It actually was a shoe hotel. <laughs> um, and in, because in Japan, so many people... Um, are living in very, especially in Tokyo, living in very small apartments. Yeah. Many of them didn't have the, the room to store their shoes. So they they used this service. And the value, what was really interesting is the value that the owner was providing was, you know, a really wide range of things. She, not only was she storing and caring for the caring. shoes, but she was also identifying trends and telling customers across one another, oh, you know, this is hot and this is new and yeah. you should see this pair of shoes. And so she'd added this whole other layer to her offering that, you know, it's like there's this concierge level to a product that we would never have occurred to us had we not just been curious, right? I mean, really genuinely curious. It wasn't on our research plan. 
It wasn't checking a box. It was really just sort of getting yeah. out there in the world. So what can you take from that as regards and what have you learned and how have you applied that type of off-the-cuff research um, into other projects? Well, I think one of the things that I have learned is that there are a couple of things. I, mean, I, think, I think always stretching beyond the research plan is always going to be valuable in one way or another, typically. And if it isn't valuable for that project, stick with it because curiosity has longitudinal value. It's yeah. eventually, you know, you can start cross-referencing ideas in ways that you would never expect. You see that often on projects where you're doing going through the analysis process and you're starting to compare different domains of experiences that fed into the project. But I think that very important takeaways for me. Okay, great. I totally see that myself whenever I'm conducting research that you can sit down with somebody for 30, 40 minutes in their home, but it's usually the, the journey between their home and my car where the information starts to come out when they finish the, the ceremony of research almost. Totally. I mean, one thing I have learned, just a small tip is after you, everyone has thought that the interview is over, leave that recorder on yeah. <laughs> because that's when the, the real stuff comes out often, right? That's the, that question you forgot to ask or that's something that they forgot to mention. Yeah, the pearls of wisdom where when they feel it's over, they're almost like, oh man, I'm so, I don't know if I answered your question right because I, I thought this was actually, you know, the real problem and that they deliver it then. Yep. So um, we're, we're coming towards the end of the episode here, but I've got one or two other questions that I really want to ask. And this is from the Slack channel, actually. Um, one of the girls there had asked, how does design thinking and ethnography thinking differ? I think that there's, in terms of methods, I think there's a lot of overlap. But one of the things that I think that, um, there are a few things that I think ethnographic thinking brings to the process that um, make it unique in, in ways that are different than design thinking. One is this adapted methods approach, whereas you're getting in the field, actually the, the Tokyo story is a good example where you want to get out there and certainly you want to collect the data that's most relevant, but you also want to be thinking on your feet enough to make sure that you're open and truly genuinely curious about what's around you so that you get that broader context. Not that designers don't do that, some do, some don't, but that's something that is sort of embedded within ethnographic thinking and then there's some, there are other things like uh, learning through cultural immersion, you know, beyond what your design brief is, but still related to the design brief. So this, these deep dives that are really focused on culture, you know, waiting in line to mail a letter in a place that's unfamiliar to you, you know, yeah. things like that, where you're really trying to do a lot of absorbing with all of your senses. And the ethnography um, tends to be throughout as opposed to in the design thinking process just looking at the double diamond it's more about that empathy and that research up front so it's continuous research really throughout to inform all stages of the journey so to speak and applying it to the as you mentioned earlier applying it some of that thinking to the team as well yeah no absolutely the, the inward thinking is huge for me like in, as regards the cultural and being able to deliver that service so jay one final question in this part is what do you think the future of ethnography is within the world of innovation i know we touched on it earlier before but i'm keen to get a little bit more deeper into that piece i think some of what's on the horizon now is people are starting to realize the holistic perspective of ethnographic thinking that's helping put some of our insights into context better. So yeah. really trying to get an understanding that you know customers don't exist in a vacuum, companies don't exist in a vacuum, um, that there are lots of ways in which both are influenced, that relationship is influenced. Um, so really you know, getting a sense of what does that dynamic look like and pulling insights from that dynamic so that they can inform innovation strategies. So it isn't just 
it's really getting a more holistic perspective in general. I'm already starting to see that. Absolutely. Do you think ethnography can live in-house? I do. I do. I think I've seen it. It does live in-house in different companies. I think that one of so when it's, when you start thinking about it in that lens, you start thinking about okay, some of the value you get there are people who can really recalibrate perspectives within a company itself or an organization. You know, know when to apply the broad lens or the narrow lens or shift the scope in some way. And then also, I would say that you're starting to see increasing cases of people taking on management and leadership roles who are trained in ethnography because they can really start to integrate those disparate perspectives, you know, expand perspectives and, and facilitate. Those are all sort of core components of ethnographic thinking. Absolutely. And enable the organizational culture to develop more into that innovative culture. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to move into the final part of the, the episode, Jay. Um, and we've got three questions that we ask every guest. I don't know if you've managed to listen to any of the other episodes. Um, it's kind of where I peel back the layers a little bit and trying to get to know you a little bit better. But what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? Yeah, I said, these are these are great questions. I noticed. Um, I think for me, the I would prefer that I was better at responding on the spot. Although you know, I think I did okay in the interview today. But oh, this but, isn't an interview, Jay. This is just a conversation. <laughs> but I think that my first inclination is to kind of reflect and consider. So sometimes I'll think back to an interaction and I'll be like, you know what, if I had said that, <laughs> you know, that, that might've changed the conversation in an entirely different direction. So maybe I could respond on the spot more easily. Do you reflect on conversations after they've happened? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> like obsessively. Do you think that's a bad thing? <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I think it's probably actually, you know, one of the hazards of being an ethnographer in some ways, because that's what you do. You know, you're often thinking back, it's a good way to exercise your memory, not only, but also to sort of think through the meanings that were being exchanged there that went beyond just the words. Yeah, I'm totally I'm the same as you. I reflect on everything. So the second question, Jay, is what is the one thing from the industry that you wish you would be able to banish? Yeah, I've thought about that one. I think I have two things. I, <laughs> I, I would banish the words intuition right. and the word worry. I think that, and I think a lot of designers are with me on this too, this old school notion of intuition that I kind of just know what it is, you know, and somehow I have some sort of mysterious spiritual understanding of what to, <laughs> what to do, you know, and it's really frustrating for me because I think, you know, while there may be something as an, an informed opinion or a set of experiences that inform what, you know, how you get to a space. um, I think that intuition is really gives people um, license to do whatever they want. Do you think the intuition is wrapped up a little bit in the, uh, the designer guru factor? I do. I do. Yeah. I mean, I think, like I said, I think it's fading, I think in a lot of ways, but there's still a bit of it out there. The creative director knows best. Yeah. And I am definitely an empiricist, right? It's like, well, <laughs> you better prove it to me. But. <laughs> All right. So the other one, when you said worry, that was intuition. What worry you want to be able to banish? Yeah, uh, worry really, I think, gives people license in interactions to absolve themselves of responsibility because they mm. can just sort of abstractly worry <laughs> about, yeah. about an outcome. Um, rather than coming to the table with a solution or you know a challenge with a set of approaches you might take to get to a solution. So that one I've seen as this little bit of an escape route. So those two words, I think. Excellent. Uh, and the final question, Jay, is what advice would you give to emerging design talent for the future? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, you know, of course I'll say this, there's a lot of advice in the book, but um, I think that there's some top things that 
that would be beneficial for anyone starting and to take throughout their career. Um, one of them, staying curious, having the courage to reframe assumptions with questions and to stretch beyond the plan. When you mean stretch beyond the plan? I mean, you know, you may have this route that you've decided that makes sense, whether it be a project plan or a research plan. And I'm sure, you know, it's and usually they're very well thought out. But when you get in the field or when you get out there in the world and you, or even when you're in analysis of some stage, being able to exercise beyond what you intended is almost always a good thing as long as you don't lose sight and, and go too far astray. Fantastic, Jay. We're, we're coming towards the, the very final piece here. How can people connect with you and how can they learn more about what you do? Sure, yeah, they can um, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm there and I check. I'll pop that into the show notes. The link to your LinkedIn is in the show notes. Great. Um, I will most likely be at Epic 2018 this year in Honolulu, which is oh. the Epigraphic Practice and Industry Conference. Nice. Yeah, so that will be awesome. Aloha. Even, sounds like you've got a tough life, Jay. Going, <laughs> going to Hawaii for conferences, you guys are doing it really well. <laughs> yeah, not my, not my plan, but I will certainly attend. <laughs> and uh, I'll drop a link to the, uh, the book in uh, the show notes as well. Jay, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely brilliant speaking to you. And we'd love to get you back on possibly in the future to discuss more because I definitely feel this huge value in in your learning and sharing it across into the human-centered design community. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jerry. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.